0: We're continuing our study through the book of Philippians. My name's Caleb. I'm one of the pastors here at The Grove. And we are going through a study in Philippians. We're just walking verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. That's one of the things that marks us as a church. We're expository preachers, which means most of the time we're just walking uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through books of the Bible. We want to hold a microphone up to God and let Him speak to us. And so we're walking through this study in this book of Philippians, and last week as we began, we actually went outside of Philippians and started in Acts to see where this church began. We have the story of how the church started. So it's the prequel before the, the main event of Philippians. So it's like you have the Lord of the Rings, and you have the prequel to The Hobbit. You've got Star Wars, episodes 4, 5, and 6, and you have the prequels, episodes 1, 2, and 3. If you'd like to call those movies, I I wouldn't, but that's fine. Let's move on. Um, We have, before we get to Philippians chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, we've got Acts chapter 16, which we looked at last week. Paul walks into the city of Philippi, um, and he begins to preach the gospel, and people begin to have their lives Changed. And we see this group formed uh, between Lydia, uh, this uh, wealthy Asian businesswoman, um, this uh, formerly possessed, demon possessed slave girl, and a blue collar Philippian jailer that all have the gospel transform their life. And this church is started. The gospel is planted in Philippi. Well, fast forward now, 10 years. Paul continues to go through planting churches, preaching the gospel. This church in Philippi has continued to grow. Paul stays in touch with them. Fast forward 10 years later, Paul finds himself in prison in Rome, and he's writing to this church to encourage them to address some certain conflict that's in the church. We'll get to that in chapter 4. But primarily to help just teach them, to encourage them, and to tell them how much he misses them. Paul has a very warm and affectionate relationship with this church. You'll hear even in the very beginning, you're going to hear Paul's relationship with them come through. And so as Paul plants the gospel here in this city, we see that gospel begin to grow things. So what I want us to look at this morning, as we're looking at Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, that's where we're going to be, as Olivia read earlier. As we're looking, I want to ask the question, what does that gospel that was planted in Philippi, what does that gospel create? What does that gospel produce? Particularly in the relationships with a church, with this church in Philippi, and then for us as a church, what does the gospel have to say about how we view one another and what our relationship with one another is like? What's the flavor of a local church? And Paul here in writing to them sets that stage and shows the three things I think the gospel creates what we see here in Philippians. So we see the gospel creates partnership. See that in verses three through five. See the gospel creates confidence. See this in verse six. And third, that the gospel creates affection. See that in verses seven and eight. So we've we'll spend most of our time in verses three through eight, but I don't want to completely skip over his greeting in verses one and two. Paul writes kind of a standard greeting in the beginning of a lot of his letters. But in it, we see something that's important in his relationship to this church. It's all based on and grounded in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 1. It's Paul and Timothy who are servants of Christ Jesus. Who is he writing to? He's writing to all the saints that are in Christ Jesus. In Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons. Now, he's not writing to the saints, kind of these upper echelon Christians. Uh, No, saints in the Bible are every single person who's a Christian. Uh, You are then a saint. Uh, So that's who Paul is writing to here. And he's writing and extending grace and peace that comes from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. So Paul's relationship to them is that he is a servant of Christ Jesus, writing to saints in Christ Jesus, extending grace and peace from Christ Jesus. Paul's entire letter is flowing out of his relationship and his understanding of who Jesus is and the community that Jesus creates. So Paul is writing then with that in mind, and we get then to verse 3 through 5, this first point that we see the gospel of Jesus creates partnership. Now here's what I mean by that. We see in verse 5, Paul uses that word, your partnership. Before we get there, I want to see verses 3 and 4 show us a little bit about what Paul is, what's going through Paul's mind and his heart. Right, Paul says, I give thanks to my God. So Paul is thankful, he's grateful, he is, he's filled with thanksgiving. He's giving thanks particularly to God. Why? What makes Paul thankful? Remember where Paul is, Paul's is in prison. Paul has shackles around his feet. What makes Paul thankful? Look at verse 3. He thanks God for every remembrance of you. Paul's thankful for the individuals and the church as a whole in Philippi. So Paul begins thanking God for people. And and these weren't perfect people. Again, like we said in chapter 4, there were issues that were happening. There was conflict that had arisen. Paul had to address it. But the first thing Paul does is he gives thanks to God every day in his prayers for what God has done in and through them. So not only do we see thanks, but we also see Paul praying. Verse 4, he's always praying. He's praying for them, praying with them, thanking God for them in his prayers. And what is the tone of his prayer? We see in verse four, he prays with joy. There's a joy, a rejoicing that fills Paul when he is praying for the people in this church. He's thanking God for what they've done. He's thanking God for his grace in their life. And he's praying with joy for all of you. Not just for the ones that he likes, not the ones that are easy to love, not the ones that he enjoys hanging out with, but he is filled with joy for every single one of them in every single one of his prayers. And you go, man, that's awesome, but I don't know how to have that kind of thanksgiving, how to pray that often, how to pray with joy about my relationships with people in my church. Maybe you're, maybe you're going, man, I, I think about some people in my church, and I'm filled with joy. I think about others, and I'm filled with uh, frustration. I'm filled with bitterness, maybe, with tension. Maybe you, 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 you're walking down a supermarket, and you see people, and you're like, oh, I, I'm just going to walk down this other aisle. Not from a social distance point of view. You're, just, you're going, I, I don't really want to have to have a conversation. Maybe there's anxiety that arises. But for Paul, his relationship with them was drastically different. Why? What was the secret? How does Paul have a joy-filled relationship with the people, with all of the people in this church? How does he do it? Well, I think the secret we get to is verse 5. Paul says, I'm thanking God, praying with joy. Why? Because of. So Paul's about to tell us why. How, where does all that come from? What comes from? It's because of your partnership in the gospel. Your partnership in the gospel. Paul's saying, here's my perspective of our relationship. What, notice what Paul doesn't say. Paul doesn't say, hey, I, I want to make this clear. I'm the apostle. I'm writing the New Testament. This letter I'm writing to you, it's going to be in the Bible. Guy, A couple thousand years from now, he's going to be talking to a camera. You don't know what a camera is, but don't worry about it. Listen, I'm the apostle Paul. I've got this thing under wraps. You guys just sit around. I'm going to take care of it. I'm the expert here. Y'all just watch. I'm going to do the ministry. That's not Paul's perspective. What is Paul's perspective of this church? He views this church, this young church that has just gotten started, and he says, hey, you and I, let me tell you what we are. We are partners in the gospel. We are co-workers in The gospel. We are in this together. God has gifted every single one of us differently, but He has called every single one of us and sent every single one of us to go and take this gospel to the ends of the earth. He says that partnership, understanding that, it creates that kind of community. That word partnership is the Greek word koinonia, and it's sometimes translated as fellowship, community here as partnership. And Paul's saying, You want to know the secret of Christian community, Christian fellowship? I don't know if you grew up in the church, maybe you heard that word fellowship, and maybe your mind runs to potlucks at one o'clock right after church. That's not with a fellowship that Paul's talking about here. Paul's talking about a different kind of a community, a different kind of partnership, one that is based not on common interests. Right? That's not what makes Christian friendships unique. The world has friendships. That's God's common grace to the world. But Christian friendships are different they taste different. They feel different. They have a different end to them. The world has friends and goes, hey, I'm going to get together with people that I have common interests with, that I enjoy hanging out with, that do good for me. That's what I'm going to surround myself with. But Paul says that the partnership that he had, that fellowship with the church, wasn't based on common interests. It was based in the gospel. There was a partnership in the gospel. So that word koinonia, that word partnership or fellowship, um, D.A. Carson writes about it this way, one of my favorite New Testament scholars. He says, the heart of true fellowship, you want to get down to the very heart of it, here's the heart of true fellowship. It is self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision. Self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision. Is saying, I'm going to lay down my interests, what is best for me, and conform then to the group as a whole to be able to accomplish the vision that we have collectively. So an example of this, again, if you've seen the movies or read the books, uh, The Lord of the Rings, the very first book is called what? It's the Fellowship of the Ring. Now, what makes that group of nine a fellowship? Is it they enjoyed hanging out? They liked each other? They all liked the same things? No, they were drastically different. You had hobbits you had men, you had elves, you had wizards, you had dwarves. In fact, the elves and the dwarves hated one another, right? There was, there was actual tension between the two groups of people, and they hated one another. But still, within this group, there was a fellowship, and there was a bond that was created. Why? Well, because they had a self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision. They came together and said, we will lay down what is best for us to work together as a group to be able to accomplish the vision that we all have, and that is to destroy the ring of power and the great um, uh, Khazad-dum. Uh, anyway, we won't even get into it, into into Mount... Uh, oh, my goodness. I can't remember the mountain's name. Don't worry about it. Don't judge me. If you're Lord of the Rings fans, we're moving past it. Listen, it's it's... It's a camera. This is weird. Let's just talk about it and just move on. It wasn't kazadoom Just, okay. Anyway, destroy the ring. That's what they were going for. They had a shared vision. Back to the sermon. For Christians, then in a local church, that community, then as we come together, it is a self-sacrificing conformity that says, I will lay down my interests for the sake of what is best for others, to come together to accomplish the vision and mission that we all have. Well, what is the vision and mission of the church? What Jesus tells us, Jesus tells us at the end of Matthew, he says, all authority has been given to heaven uh, and heaven on earth has been given to me. And here's what you've got to go do. If you follow me, here's what I'm telling you to go do. Go and make disciples of all nations. Go make disciples. Follow Jesus and have others follow me as well. Be a disciple that makes disciples. That is the mission of the church. That's why we as the Grove Church exist. We exist to make disciples, to carry out that vision. So as a church then, it changes our perspective as we then see that as members of this church, we are not just getting together to hang out in a social club. We aren't just getting together to find friends. We aren't just getting together to find people that have shared interests. No, we are coming together to lay down our interests, to lock arms with one another, to be able to advance the gospel with a shared vision and mission that we have, to lift up Jesus and bring people to him. And we all, every single person, whether you are a pastor, a deacon, staff member, a leader, a small group leader, member of the church, or have just started coming and you want to get plugged in, if you come and get involved at the Grove, you are not joining a social group, you are joining a partnership in the gospel. You are taking up, you're off the bench, you're in the game. And we are moving this thing forward together as. Partners, And whenever that perspective clicks, then we begin to thank God for that partnership. We begin to thank God for what He's doing in others' lives. We begin to pray for one another in our partnership, and we pray with joy. Even when there's conflict, we don't ignore the conflict. We're able to walk right through it and go, listen, we have something greater than the conflict that exists between us. We can talk through it, we can resolve it, we can own it, and we can continue to walk arm in arm, continuing the advancement of this gospel. So what's one of the things that might rob that joy from you? One of the things that might rob that joy from you is if you're a hypercritical person. If it's easy for you to see the falls and the faults in other people, maybe scroll through Facebook and You dwell on what other people are doing poorly. You you go quickly past the people that are doing well because that makes you feel bad. But when you find people that do things you would do differently, we sit on that. It makes us feel better about ourselves. We dwell on it. Maybe a lot of our conversation with our spouse or our close friends is just kind of filled with the negativity and criticism of others. It's easy to see the faults in others. Listen, the reason why that actually robs joy from us is it focuses our minds on the negatives in people's lives to be able to make us feel better. And if you're always finding what's wrong with others, you won't find joy with yourself. So notice what Paul does in Philippians 1. What's the first thing he does with this church. He says, I give thanks. Paul doesn't point out the flaws and the faults. They're there, and he addresses them in chapter 4. You know, Paul begins... With finding the good in people, pointing out the grace of God in people's lives, and thanking God for them. When was the last time that you prayed, not only for someone, but you just thanked God for someone individually or for something that they did? It's okay to thank God for the people that are in our lives. Not only that, Paul gave thanks for the entire church, even the people that were difficult. You go, well, yeah, but Caleb. this was the church in Philippi. He had a great relationship with them. That's true. He did the same thing with the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 1.4. The church in Corinth was a mess. I mean, it was filled with issues. Paul, you read 1 Corinthians, man, it's just like crazy after crazy after crazy after crazy. In 1 Corinthians 1, you know what Paul says? I'm going to thank God for you. Paul begins with seeing God's grace in people's life. He knows the, the, the journey of following Jesus is just that. It's a journey. It's a process. And he sees people and gives thanks to God for where people are, that God has saved them and He is moving them. And he begins there. So rather than being hypercritical, what if we became hyper thankful? We we'll begin to try to see the good in people, highlighting them, thanking God for it, telling people the good that we see in their life. Telling others about the good that we see in other people's life, Gossiping about people in good ways. That's my, that's my challenge this week. Think of one person. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's somebody that's hard for you to love. Maybe it's somebody that you have bitterness with right now. You want, to tell me how to, you want me to tell you how to fight that? Be thankful for them this week. Pray for them. Give thanks to God for them. Tell them that you're thankful for them and tell others why you're thankful for them it is hard to hate someone that you're praying for. It's hard to be bitter with someone that you're praying God's blessing for. And so fight for joy by praying for others, being thankful for others, and seeing that ultimately these are people we're gonna spend eternity with, and right now we are partners in the gospel. That was the basis of his thankfulness, his prayers, and his joy. So Paul begins and sees the gospel creates partnership, but it doesn't end there. He continues, and not only does it create partnership, it also creates Confidence. We see this in verse 6. Confidence. Paul says, I am sure of this. Paul is, Paul's is coming in with swagger here in verse 6. He says, I am confident. I know what I'm about to say is going to be true. I am sure of this. What is Paul sure of? He is sure of this promise that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And this is one of those verses, highlight, underline, box, star, do whatever you can, you can still read it to make sure you come back to this often. This is a beautiful promise. Why is it a beautiful promise? Because of Paul's confidence that he has, and there's three aspects to it. Right, the first we see, Paul says that he who started a good work in you, we'll stop there, it's the first aspect. Who begins the work? It's not the church. In your life, it's not you. Talking about salvation, the the work of salvation that began in us, who started it? It was God. God began the work in the church, in you, in every single heart. This is the theological word for this is called regeneration, where God takes out our heart of stone, gives us a heart of flesh. He changes our desires, changes our hearts. He begins the work, not us. We we see this even back in Acts 16, the very start of this church. Acts 16, verse 14, Lydia, the very first Christian convert in the entire continent of Europe, the first one here in Philippi, verse 14 says this, that she was a God-fearing woman. She was a dealer in purple cloth. She was listening to Paul as Paul was preaching the gospel. And as he's preaching, this is what happens. Verse 14, Luke describes it this way. He says, The Lord opened her heart. What began the work in Lydia wasn't Paul, wasn't Lydia, it was the Lord. The Lord opened her heart to respond to what Paul was saying. Luke will finish out that thought. Lydia responds as a result of God beginning the work in her. Now here's one of the reasons why that's encouraging. It's encouraging because that gives us boldness. To know that God is the one who begins the work, it's not up to us. It, it, in evangelism, in sharing your faith, it is not up to you how persuasive you are, how much theology you know, how well-versed you are in apologetics or in worldview to be able to poke holes in just the right way, be able to convince somebody. Listen, that is a burden that will weigh us down, but is not a burden the New Testament describes. New Testament scribes, says, it says, here's your job description. Take the gospel, get it from your lips to their ears. Paul was preaching. Lydia was listening It's God's job to get it from their ears to their heart. So Paul was preaching, but the Lord opened Lydia's heart. And then Lydia responds. And that gives us a different kind of boldness because then there is no one. Listen, there are people that are beyond us being able to convince them to believe and trust and follow Jesus. But there is no one who is beyond the sovereign grace of God. There is no one who is, quote-unquote, unsavable to God's grace. Whoever he opens their hearts, they then will believe and follow. We see this maybe no more clearly than in Paul himself. Paul was a former Middle Eastern terrorist who was killing Christians. That's what he was going around. He was was making sure, trying to shut this thing down. And one day on the road to Damascus, all of a sudden his life changed. And you know who began the work in Paul's heart? The Lord showed up and the Lord began the work in him. God saved a Middle Eastern terrorist and commissioned him to be the greatest missionary the world's ever seen and write over half of the New Testament. Imagine what God might do in your life or with unbelieving friends or family. Maybe we believe that there, there are people who are just maybe too far gone. Friend, see in verse 6 that God is the one who starts the good work and there is no one who goes beyond His sovereign grace. So it gives us boldness and confidence in that. So that's the first aspect, that He begins the work. But not only does He start the good work, but also says that He will carry it on to completion. So not only does He christen it, He also carries it. So you may say, well, Caleb, yeah, I, I got it. You know, God saved me, got that. But now it's up to me in living the Christian life. I've got to be disciplined. I've got to work hard. It's up to me and my effort. You know, God saved me, but now it's my turn. Again, that's not what the New Testament teaches. New Testament teaches that as you continue on, the only hope that you have in salvation and carrying on in the Christian life and sanctification and looking more like Jesus is if God carries you, if His Spirit is the one producing that fruit, that there is nothing that we can do apart from His help, that it is His Spirit. Every single act of obedience in our life is a miracle of the Holy Spirit. And He is carrying us on to completion. He's holding us. He is carrying us. Again, why is that comforting? It's comforting because there will be times in our lives when our faith might grow cold, when we might be apathetic. There may be times when you doubt, am I even a Christian at all? I don't know if I'm made for this thing called the Christian life. Just, it's just not jiving with me. I, I, I don't know how to do this. I want to, but it just I keep falling flat. Maybe I'm not a Christian. Maybe God hasn't begun the work in my life, and I'm trying, I'm just unable and, and we keep falling, and we doubt, and we're unsure, and we don't have any assurance. And this is an important verse because in those seasons, maybe that's where you are right now, you have two options. Either you can say, okay, I'm not sure, so I'm going to work harder. And if that's the case, you are bound for danger. You will either continue to fail and feel overwhelmed, or you might succeed and become self-righteous. The other option in those seasons is to go, God, I don't know if I can do this. What assurance do I have? Come back to Philippians 1.6 and go, no, I know God began a good work in me. I know that I'm struggling and stumbling right now, but he's promised to carry me on to completion. And I will rest in that promise. I will rest in his grace. I will rest in his hold. And I know that as long as I am in his hand, there is nothing that can pull me away from his love. This is exactly what Jesus said in John 10, verse 27 and 28. He says, My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. No one. Jesus begins a good work in you and he carries you on in his nail-scarred hands until it's completed. J.I. Packer put it this way, he says, Your faith will not fail while God sustains it. You are not strong enough to fall away while God is resolved to hold you. What a beautiful way to say that. You, You are not strong enough to fall away while God is resolved to hold you. So when you feel your faith might fail, Christ will hold you fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold you fast. That is our assurance in those moments, Philippians 1.6. And it is this promise that he who began a good work will carry it on to completion. Listen, if you walk into my house, there's like 15 projects that are unfinished. If Leah's watching, Leah just... Stop listening for a little while. I would like to finish them, but they're just, that I start them and I don't finish them. I don't know if anyone else is with me, but that's just kind of the nature of it. There are things that are undone on my to-do list. What we see in Philippians 1-6, friends, is there is nothing that is unfinished on God's to-do list. What God begins, God completes. What He starts, He finishes. The good work he began in you, he will carry it on to completion. That is the confidence that we have. And that confidence is found not only individually, but also as a church. That Paul's writing to the church here and going, hey, this church didn't start because of how ingenuitive you were or your children's ministry strategy or how engaging your speaker was. He said, No, the gospel was planted and God began this good work and God will carry it on to completion. For is this the same for our church at the Grove? I did not plant the church. I mean, in some ways, I understand what that's saying, but in the truest sense, God planted and built His church. God is the one who began this work here in South Lake County. And the other thing that's important is to know that God will carry it on. So it is not up to us and our vision and our mission strategy or how clever something might be said or worded or or how our graphics might look or what our children's ministry might be or how good our music is or how good our uh, whatever it might be. Uh, If that happens, we are then relying on human means and our own ingenuity and we're emptying emptying the cross of Christ from its power. But if we see our confidence rest not in how cool we might be, not in how engaging we might be, uh, not in how Sensitive we might be, but our confidence rests in the sovereign grace of God that He who began the good work here will carry it on to completion. We go, okay, our job is to be faithful, to lift high the name of Jesus Christ and tell people, look to Him. Let's make sure the gospel is going out, that people can know that 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 feeling they have of guilt and shame and separation from God is resolved by Jesus Christ and believing in Him. We preach that message and then we step back and go, okay, God, you give the growth. You carry this on. You bring it to completion. We will plant, we will water, but only you can give the growth. That's the, that's the source of our confidence as a church, is in God and His gospel and His sovereign grace. So even in a time like this, in the midst of a global pandemic, you know how we can continue to be confident as a church? It's that we know God is the one who began it. God is carrying it on until uh, he has moved on to no longer needing us. Listen, if we close our doors up tomorrow, that does not impede the mission of God for one second. It doesn't change our identity, our success, and it doesn't slow his plans. So that's why we can continue as we walk through this, seeing God is coming together. God is continuing to work in incredible ways in this church. But our hope and our success is not in what he does here through us. It's in us being faithful to what he's called us to be. And we know that our confidence rests in in this promise that Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So since he's the one building it, he's the one who began it, the gates of hell can't prevail against it. I can promise you a global pandemic won't either. Jesus Christ is still moving in and through his church. He began the good work, he is carrying it on, and he will complete it one day on the day of Christ Jesus. So we see the gospel creates them that confidence. Not only does it create partnership and confidence, but third, we see it creates affection. We see this in verses seven and eight. Paul says, indeed, it's right for me to think this way about all of you because I have you in my heart. And you are all partners with me in grace. There's that phrase again. Paul, this is the way that he sees his relationship. We are partners in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness. How deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. So Paul's saying, listen, it's right that I feel this way. God's my witness. Here's the way that I feel. I deeply miss all of you. Now again, Paul's in prison, so it's, it's definitely a different situation, but these words land differently on me today than they would have two months ago. I read this now, and I understand Paul's heart as he's writing to a church, or in this situation, speaking to a church through a camera, and me as your pastor going, I deeply miss all of you. I cannot wait to gather together again, to see you in person, to worship together, to be there in the same building, gathering together, worshiping Jesus. I deeply miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. I understand more of what Paul is saying here. And that affection that is created, notice where it comes from. So Paul isn't just saying, hi, I miss you with affection because I'm a sensitive kind of guy. If you read Paul's letter, Paul doesn't strike me as sensitive. But Paul still has affection. He has affection for the people in this church. Where does that affection come from? It is the affection of Christ Jesus. So Paul is saying, first of all, understand the affection that Christ has for you. Know that Jesus thinks fond, warm, and affectionate thoughts of you. So some of you maybe just need to hear that. Jesus isn't disappointed in you. Jesus looks affectionately towards you. He loves you. And that affection is seen most clearly in the cross. And that affection, then Paul says, should dictate the affection that we should have for one another. Paul doesn't say that he has affection because he's a two on the Enneagram or he's an ENFP. No, Paul says this isn't a question of personality. This is a question of theology. Do we understand the way in which Christ has loved us? Because that's the way that we are to love one another. And it created this warmth, this affection that permeated his relationships. For who? For the ones, again, that he liked being around? No, he says it again. Do you hear it? In verse 7, it's right for me to think about this way, about all of you. Paul's about to confront some of the people that were dividing the church. And how does he think about them affectionately? And you go, well, Caleb, I don't know if I can do that, man. There are people who have hurt me, who have let me down, maybe who just frustrate me within our church. You're telling me I'm supposed to have affection for them? Yes, that's exactly what Paul is saying here. Well, how is that possible? Well, it's possible because we see that our affection isn't based on what people do for us, but it's first rooted in what God has done for us. We remember Jesus, remember his gospel. See that God forgave us even when we turned away, hurt him, rebelled against him and ran from him. We see how much we've been forgiven and then we look around and see people who might have wronged us. Remembering what God has done for us, we then are then to love others like God has loved us. This is exactly what Jesus tells his disciples. Hey, the way that I've loved you, you now go and love one another. So remember the way that God loved you. Remember the way that God forgave you. Remember the affection that Christ has for you. And then, after you've sat, dwelled, thought through that, then turn into your relationships with people in your life, in your church, and begin to reflect and spill out that love, that forgiveness, and that affection on others. Paul loves not with the affection of the world, but with the affection of Christ Jesus. Not with the forgiveness of the world but with the forgiveness of Christ Jesus, not with the love of the world, but the love of Christ Jesus. Paul was rooted in what God had done for him. The world says that I'll love you as long as you treat me right. The world says I will love you as long as I enjoy being around you. You can do something for me. But God's love for you isn't based on what you can do for him. It is just an overflow of who he is. Deuteronomy 7, verse 7 and 8 puts it this way. It says that God loves because he loves. That's the answer. If you ever find the reason for God's love, then you found the wrong reason. God doesn't love you because you're lovely. He doesn't love you because you offer something to the team. He doesn't love you because he goes, oh man, this is a really good addition to the squad. They bring a lot of talents. It's not like the NFL draft and there's this scouting report and he's only choosing the best. No, God loves you because he loves you. The reason why that's encouraging is because if God loved you because of how awesome you are, what happens when you no longer become awesome? We would lose his love. We'd always be fighting and pandering for him to pay attention, to see us, to love us, to not be disappointed in us. But friends, God's love is unconditional. His affection is unconditional. When Jesus sees you, he smiles. If you are in him, if you followed him and trusted in him, that is his affection towards you. And that is the way that we are to love our spouses, our kids, our friends, the members of our church. Why do we love? Not because we like being around them, not because they're easy to love. We should love because we've been loved by God and mirroring that love that he has. The gospel should create that kind of a relationship, that kind of an atmosphere. So the gospel should create that partnership. It should create that confidence. and It should create that affection. May it be true of us, may be true of our church, that we see ourselves in those ways, that we are rooted in the gospel and seeing the vision and mission that God has given us to take and advance the gospel to the ends of the earth, confidently knowing that he who begins the work will carry it on to completion. And as we're walking through, we're doing it with affection and with love for those who are with us, knowing that we have a new family that we're going to spend eternity with. And so we start today with loving with the kind of affection that Jesus has for us. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We praise you for the hope that we have in Christ. God, help us to see what you have called us to. God, to get in the game, to be partners, to be engaged, to be in this fellowship in the gospel, carrying it out with a certain kind of boldness and confidence, knowing that you are the one who is working. And God, create in our relationships and in this church a warmth and an affection, God, that mirrors the relationship that you have for us. God, help us to love like you have loved. Help people look at our church, to look at our relationships, and see an imperfect but a a symbol still of who you are and what you've done for us. God, we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.